Sunrise on November 6th, 2018. The Cowboys lost last night, but Texas is going to win tonight. It's election day, and history's about to be made. Better O'Rourke is going to be the star of the midterm elections. He's going to beat Ted Cruz. You know momentum when it's real. You can see the signs, things that wouldn't otherwise be possible just happen. Massive crowds, bumper stickers, national profiles, and then this, an election day surprise. A blessing from a Texan who ascended to the heavens, Beyonce endorses Beto on Instagram. Some things are just meant to happen. I know, I know, I know. I'll be honest, I've been pessimistic about Beto since the final phase of that campaign, but this is not the time for that. This is the time for us to remember what was achieved. So let's remember the big number, shall we? Beto raised $78 million to run against Ted Cruz for a Senate seat. That, my friends, is a record. No one has ever raised that amount of money before for a Senate seat. To give you a little context, right now, the candidate who has raised the most money through this 2020 campaign cycle is Bernie Sanders. Any guesses on how much he's raised collectively? I'll tell you, $73 million. Less than what Beto raised in a similar amount of time to run for Senate. Beto, at this moment, quite simply, is a unicorn. And like most things that shouldn't exist, people have a hard time explaining why it's there. He's young. He live streams a lot. He skateboards. He curses. No one knows exactly why. They just know it's happening. Until it doesn't. I just now had the opportunity to talk to Senator Cruz and to congratulate him, to congratulate him on his victory and to wish him well going forward. And what I said and what I pledge on behalf of all of us is that at this time of division... Beto loses, but he goes down swinging. The real clear politics average of the polling of the race had him losing by 7%. When all the votes are tallied... He outperformed his polls and narrowly lost by only 2%. That's huge. That's a gigantic shot of adrenaline to Texas Democrats. And that's still real today. One day after his Beyonce blessing, Beto still feels like somebody on a righteous path. After all, $78 million is a massive number. And he did most of it through small donation website Act Blue, which means he has a massive mailing list. It's no secret that a lot of that money came from out of state, but in a nationwide race for president, that's a feature, not a bug. And there just so happens to be a presidential election on the horizon. This is faded. Beto 
is born to be in it. And everything from this moment on is diminishing returns. In fact, really, everything from Beyonce on is diminishing returns. It only goes lower from that, the highest point of his career. Seriously. All the idiosyncrasies that the experts fawned over when he was a Senate threat become liabilities. The wandering focus on policy that made him a great anyone but Cruz candidate is embarrassing when compared to the laser focus on massive programs like Medicare for All or the experience of some of the more establishment options. Even the live streaming gets mocked. And after initial fundraising boom, that fizzles too. If you don't have the excitement and you don't have the money, then you don't have the momentum. And just the same as you knowing when it's real, you also know when it's gone. And so does everyone else around you. They're separating these little children from their families is that they're using Section 1325 of that act, which criminalizes coming across the border to incarcerate the, pre- the parents and then separate them. Some of us on this stage have called to end that section, to terminate it. Some, like Congressman O'Rourke, have not. And I want to challenge all of the candidates to do that. I I just think it's a mistake, Bethel. I think it's a mistake. And I think that that if you truly want to... Like a band with a mediocre second album, the crowd starts chanting for Beto to play the hits. You know, there's another Senate race coming up in Texas. He came really close the last time. He can go all the way this time. Everyone still has the bumper stickers on their cars. But he refuses. And then he burns the bridge. He says something during a presidential race that's bold. But specifically, it's going to be something that will haunt him forever if he wants to run in the Lone Star State. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against our fellow Americans. Beto hadn't exactly been a Second Amendment advocate before this. But a mandatory buyback policy? Then to gift wrap a quote that can be used against you in any other race you run? Can you even win a race in Texas if that quote exists? He's do or die for the White House. And last Friday, the dream died. You can't separate those two races. They're mirrors of each other. A brilliant emergence and a comical falling off the map. A shooting star. Which is why, in a lot of ways, for symmetry purposes, I'm upset that he ended last Friday and not today. November 6th. The one-year anniversary of the Beyoncé endorsement. The Beyoncé Day. The day his Instagram was the center of the political world. I went back to his Instagram today. It's a picture of two kids, I presume that they're his, riding bikes into the dark autumn air. Thank you, Austin. Thank you, Texas. Thank you, Beto. All the way, buddy. We love y'all. Thank you. 
I love you too, Willie. Thanks to the folks that support us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. PX3 begins now. everybody to the politics 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 program my name is justin robert young a lot on the show today including more beto we are going to do our giveaway for uh, the beto for america sign that we have whenever the campaign undertaker calls you the listeners get the spoils we'll have the details on that in a second we're gonna have andrew heaton on Talking about a, a little bit more of that Senate campaign. He was right in the center of it in Texas while it was happening. And I got in my head that Beto might be, by the numbers, the biggest financial disaster in political history. So I got myself into open secrets and uh, started pulling financial data, crunching some numbers. Here's the good news for Beto. He ain't close. We'll have all those details in a second as well. But first, let's go ahead and get into the news. Number one, election day happened. Kind of. Kind of election day. It's a little bit like election day. Kind of felt like election day. People were going to vote. They're on social media posting their I voted stickers. But it really only mattered in Kentucky, Virginia, and Mississippi. No, I mean, uh, don't, 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 don't send me emails. I swear to God. Yes, all races matter. Yes, I've always said, please act locally. Those things affect you far more than the national elections. I'm not saying that the local elections don't matter. Of course they matter. Go. I'm, I'm happy everybody voted for everything, okay? In terms of the national media, three states were in the spotlight. Kentucky. Mississippi, and Virginia. And if we're going to go by that narrative, then it was a very good night to be on the blue team. Here's the big news. Kentucky. This is a state that tends to lean Republican by hefty double digits, right? Like 18, possibly 20 points. They elected a Democratic governor. It was Andy Bashir, the son of former Governor Steve Bashir. He beats incumbent Matt Bevin. Woo, was it a squeaker? It was a squeaker and a half. 5,000 votes. Bevin has, as of the time that I am recording this, yet to concede the race. So what does this say? And specifically, what does it say about Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell? Mitch McConnell's up for election next year. Donald Trump's obviously up for election next year. Does this mean that Kentucky is in play for one or both of them? Probably not. Look, Matt Bevin is somebody that is uniquely unpopular. Uh, He he actually went against Mitch McConnell (laughs) in, in his last election. This is a dude who has alienated a lot of his own base. So the fact that he lost is not exactly a shocker. 
Donald Trump did come down to Kentucky, came down to Lexington, made a big deal about how don't you know, just vote for me, vote for Trump. If you hate Bevin, vote for Trump. Bevin was leading going into this, but polls statewide in Kentucky are, are few and far between, at least for that race it was. So I don't know how much stake you should take into that. It's still a gigantic win for the Democrats. Do not get me wrong. But this is one of those all politics are local situations, in my opinion. I don't think that McConnell needs to worry all that much. I don't think that Trump needs to worry all that much. In Mississippi, probably closer than the Republicans would have liked it, but they retain the governor's mansion there. And in Virginia, you know, we have a blue state. Democrats got both of their chambers, their state legislative chambers. So that is a governor who survived a blackface scandal, a lieutenant governor who survived a sexual assault scandal, and an attorney general who survived a blackface scandal, along with a fully democratic state legislature. I mean, I, at this point, I, I think Northam should just come out and moonwalk in blackface again. What's anybody going to do to him? <laughs> right? It's just like, whatever. Who cares? Come get me now, suckers. Shimon. And with that, let's go ahead and get in to impeachment talk. The big news as I record this for you right now is that Donald Trump Jr. on a press tour for his new book, Triggered, has tweeted the alleged name of the whistleblower who began this impeachment process, which is disgusting, just awful. He should be ashamed of himself. Honestly, he should. How many things need to be named triggered before it's totally played out? Come on. It's like every, uh, you know, every, every right wing podcast hosts ebook, right? It's like half of the, the Netflix specials from people who are trying to appeal to the red states. Not everything can be triggered. All right. Come up with a new word. As for the whistleblower, this was going to happen. It was just a matter of who was going to pull the pin on it. Because the dude's name has been an open secret. It was on Real Clear Politics, one of their articles, like last week. It's a, a something that is known in Washington, D.C. So the question eventually was always going to become, who will report it? And then who will report it first? You know, the New York Times gave details on it and and received tremendous pushback for doing so. And I, for one, don't know why. Their job is not to keep government secrets. In fact, many of their proudest moments have been revealing government secrets. Their job is to get the fullest possible scope of information to its readership. Now, here's the tricky part. What if your readership is invested in the political back and forth and therefore doesn't, for political reasons, want it to be released and they get very mad at you if you do so. Now, if you're the New York Times or any other outlet that has a similar demographic, you got to make a business decision. 
do you stay away from this and respect the government saying that this is somebody whose whose name should not be out there and therefore don't report information that you absolutely have yourself or do you anger your paying customer base? And if that's the case, then at some point there was going to be a a bubbling up of this information. The fact that Don Jr. did it and that he did it on a press tour for his new book is its own bizarre element. But the, the whistleblower's name is going to get out and eventually there's going to be more pressure for him to testify. And if he doesn't, well, then you're just going to hear more and more. You're going to hear his story defined by the Republicans who want to discredit him. So here's the other question. Does he matter? Because, and we're going to get to this in a second, there have been more and more transcripts of these hearings or testimonies that have come out from other members of the the foreign service, basically, the, the ambassadors and communiques to Ukraine that have backed up stuff that the whistleblower brought to light. And the answer to whether or not the whistleblower matters is a real question of the dual reality that we face right now. Put simply, conservatives and Republicans are subject-focused and Democrats and liberals are predicate-focused. Meaning, Republicans and conservatives and Donald Trump are very focused on how did this begin? Forget whatever it found If it even finds things that look terrible, it only happened. You only got authorization to hold these hearings because of fruit of the poison tree. If we can prove that the first steps of this process were corrupt or done in concert with the Democrats, then everything after it doesn't matter. Meanwhile, liberals and Democrats are saying, Hey, look, whatever. Let's say that the whistleblower went to uh, every social outing with Hunter Biden and they were Eskimo brothers. And here's a picture of Hunter Biden and the whistleblower in one of those two man tubes at a water park. And they're just having the time of their lives. It doesn't matter if we found out that you leveraged foreign aid to try and damage the campaign of a political rival, that's what matters. We found that doesn't matter how we got there. As long as we are still in a world where the other side isn't even pretending to try to convince anybody from the other side that their point is correct, then the whistleblower is just going to be a beach ball. They're going to bounce him around And everyone's going to get angry and then other people are going to get happy because the other side is angry. And then the other side's going to get angry because the other side is happy because they're angry. And eventually it's just going to lead to the Senate and it's going to die there. Which brings us to a very pedantic point that I would like to make. If you would indulge me in this very annoying point. In fact, I am only telling you this because every once in a while, I just get 
these very annoying points in my brain and only after burning my hand on the stove so many times and bringing them up in, in common company that I realized that, no, nobody's here for your dumb point, Justin, that I stopped talking about them to other humans. But you guys are, are part of my part of this bizarre world that I've created for myself. So you guys might enjoy it. To give you context, other past editions of these kind of thoughts have been, I'm not for gay marriage because I would like to get a heterosexual civil union. (laughs) Because my point was, I think we should have marriage totally out of the definition of how the government recognizes whatever union you might want and that I saw the ideas of civil unions as not separate but equal but rather separate and more awesome and I would like to join that team now I made that point a few times and then people just looked at me like I was uh, trying to sell them separate water fountains and eventually I just stopped talking about it but here's the new one this is the impeachment version of my very stupid pedantic point. Is the language of quid pro quo correct? Or are the Democrats falling into a trap? Because these transcripts come out yesterday. And all the headlines are Ambassador Sondland, who was the ambassador to the European Union, revises his testimony and confirms quid pro quo. Confirms quid pro quo. And the and the, the reversal of the testimony is that Sondland now remembers a moment in which he says to somebody high up in the government of Ukraine that the foreign aid was being held up and would likely not be delivered until they agreed to go forward with an investigation and talk about it publicly. That's big, right? Now you are you are building your case. If you're the Democrats, you are trying to build your case to get from point A to point B of a bunch of several different people saying this was the motivation. Ukraine knew about it at this point. That's where we are. Quid pro quo. But is the idea of Proving quid pro quo a problem? Is it a trap? Because no matter what, if you are fighting, he proved quid pro quo. He proved quid pro quo. Well, did he? Because Ukraine got their money and they never did an investigation. He certainly didn't do that investigation's announcement on television. So what you need to be fighting for is, did the Trump administration push for a quid pro quo? Now, that does not sound as sexy, right? But it's also a house built on sturdier ground. Now, it does get you back into the Mueller problem, wherein you're saying, well, technically he did not go through with the obstruction of justice that he was looking to do, but he made the motions, he made the efforts, and that's enough. 
But that wasn't enough to push for impeachment on. Anyway, gets you back to that problem. But if you're already full bore, if you're already full steam ahead, I'm just saying it, it, it's about the pushing for a quid pro quo, the offering of a quid pro quo, the threat of a quid pro quo, not an actual quid pro quo because the White House didn't actually get anything that they wanted. They just gave them the money. At least that we know, unless you can prove that. You can prove that Ukraine is secretly investigating Burisma. Maybe that's the case you got to go for. All right. That's my pedantic argument. Uh, is the language on quid pro quo wrong? This is something that would immediately get me downvoted a million times because I want to be word man. Look at me. That's all for impeachment this week. Let me go ahead and tell you guys some stuff you already know. First, you already know that you can sign up for my free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Five stories a day, five days a week, mostly gifts. You guys, you already know. You already know. You know that you can go to takepoliticsseriously.com to support the show. You already know that if you are at the $3 level, you get a custom RSS feed that you can always have, it'll always work, no matter what level you're at, but if you're at the $3 level, you get a bonus show on Monday, you get a bonus show on Thursday. And by the way, last Thursday's bonus show was the impeachment vote. That's a pretty good show. You also know that I love you. Thank you so much for doing it. We're at we're at just amazing levels, and uh, uh, we got some really, 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 really cool stuff in the works. But you also know that this is where we give back. Beto dropped out. That means that all my Beto swag is up for grabs. If you are listening to this, it means that the episode is up on TakePoliticsSeriously.com, my Patreon page. Go to that page, whether or not you're a patron, and just write gong in the comments. That's all you got to do. I'm going to randomly select one of you guys next week, and I will be mailing you a limited edition Iowa State Fair Beto for America sign, your political memorabilia served hot off the presses. That's what you get. When you are a PX3 listener. So go on over to the Patreon, write gong in the comments for this episode, the one that is out on November 6th, 2019, and get yourself, get yourself this sign. I'm going to mail it to you. Here's something you might not know, though, because not a lot of people know it. We had our best month ever in October. And that is without any special debate episodes. Our previous highest months were always, we did like mini debates and there was two debates. So we got a lot of extra downloads. We're doing good right now. And it's because you guys keep spreading the word. So 
Keep doing it. Keep it up. Let a friend know. Uh, we could also use some new reviews on uh, the, the iTunes page or Apple Podcasts, whatever they call it now. If you enjoy the changes that have been made to the show, now's the time. If you can take a moment, if you're on your phone right now, just head on over to Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store, wherever you are getting these episodes, and write yourself a review. Man, it means the world, and it helps us establish ourselves as the must-listen-to podcast for the 2020 season. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Politics! Welcome back to the show, ladies and gentlemen. Andrew Heaton. How you doing, buddy? I am living the dream and delighted to be back on your show. You know, thank you to everybody who came out to our, our little meetup in Politicon in Nashville. That was that was an absolute blast. Uh, thank you. That, to that was that was not only fun, it was also like a it was it was it was awesome. We met we met a few people that listened to the program. There's a lot of overlap between your show and my or let, let me rephrase this. That makes it sound like it's a joint venture. A lot of your <laughs> listeners have very kindly come over from your show to my show, for which I am grateful to you and them. And we got to meet some of them. And then there were just like a ton of media people we wound up hanging out with. Like we were drinking with some guy from the Washington Post and Ben Kissel and uh, some of my degenerate friends from Texas, like it was, it was, it was a fun time. Yeah, no, it was, it was, uh, uh, it turns out that you, you can be just as cool as us and be the coolest people at Politicon, which is, uh, which is <laughs> an amazing discovery. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like I, I think Politicon being a, a Star Trek convention for political people. Yeah. Like all, already I would rank Star Trek as cooler. Yeah, like, like oh, you're, 100%. you're already there. Yeah, because like at least Star Trek people aren't coming with like weird bumper stickers to fight each other because they like <laughs> Voyager over D. Like, like it tends to be more ecumenical. Uh, and uh, so yeah, like I like it was yeah we we were we were pretty cool there. All all we had to do is just the two of us go walk over and just start smoking cigarettes next to the dumpster, and eventually a crowd gathered around. It was pretty fun. <laughs> yep. All right. So uh, Beto O'Rourke is out. I wanted to talk to somebody that was in Texas during that process. I, I was there for the beginning apex and slow fizzle of Beto-mania. <laughs> uh, now, when did you move? Because th this is when you moved to Austin, before you moved to Dallas, yeah. right? So uh, I, I've, been, I've, been, I've been registered in Austin the whole time because I never quite warmed up to Dallas. So I, I've, yeah. I, I'm not sure if I'm violating any international Sorry, sorry, what. sorry, Metroplex. Yeah, uh, but I, 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 moved, I moved to Austin about this time last year. So I, I got there maybe a month or two before the midterms, and uh, was had was vaguely familiar with Beto, uh, but then but then came into Texas and plunged into the the Beto mania, which incidentally was actually I think bigger outside of Texas than in it, uh, because That's I had friends in New York City that were just like, oh my, you gotta vote for Beto, you're gonna vote for Beto, right? Uh, like they were, they were so, so, so into it, which I think is a significant portion of, of the Beto phenomenon. Um, I, th I, there, I, I think you can come up with a word for this, Justin, if you've not already done it or not, uh -huh. there should be a word for desperately hoping in a candidacy because you just want to gut punch the other team's homeland. That's what happened with Scott Brown. Yeah. That's what happened with Beto. It's like, you know, Scott Brown, so he he basically did a surprise victory where Republicans take Ted Kennedy's old seat. The yeah. Baptists have seized the Vatican. Yeah. That's what that was. And all the Republicans rejoiced. They knew it would be temporary, but it was, oh, they're drinking progressive tears. And that was what Beto was, I think, 
was the the rest of the country that was Democrats are going. God, I hope those. I hope the Democrats take Texas. And uh, not to say that like Beto's an angry, mean guy or anything. He seems like a nice dude. But I think that was the phenomenon that carried him more than anything else. Oh, 100%. I mean, uh, in terms of the out-of-state uh, uh, rage about it, and, and certainly I, I walked down, like, real talk, there were more Beto signs in my neighborhood, in <laughs> Oakland, California, when he was running for Senate than when he was running for president. Like yeah. when, when anybody could reasonably affect or be affected by his ascendancy. There was this kind of phenomenon, which, so you're saying that when you're in Austin, People, I knew plenty of Texans that were very excited about voting for yeah. Beto, but not quite the same fervor that, let's say, your friends in New York. Well, it, it, it's also, I got to say, it's, it's confusing for me as well, because I, I moved to Dallas right before the midterms. And so he was getting spoken about a lot at the blaze where I was at the time, although uh, they were not fans of Beto, but they were still obsessed with him. Um, so, so Beto came up a lot with them. So that, but I don't think that the blaze is emblematic of the, the well, I, maybe it is emblematic of all the Republicans in Texas. I'm not sure. Um, my, I, I did have friends in Dallas that were super jazzed about Beto. One of my friends literally had a votive candle with his visage upon it. <laughs> and she, on the one hand knew it was funny, but on the other hand, no, seriously, he is like, I mean, if you were to say like, do you think he's a Christ-like person? She would have been like a hundred percent. He is one of the most Christ-like people that's ever walked the world. Like, and she, like, and she would go on these, like, I, I think in her case, or I'll back up. Um, I am not, I, I don't believe in hero worshiping politicians. There's yeah. a few that I like. I assume they're eventually going to let me down, and and when the aliens land, they'll like declare themselves wardens, and I'll, they'll shuffle me off into the coal mines. That will don't put your faith in princes, right? Uh, but yeah. I, I think I, I, I would I would I would tend to think about politicians the same way that Trump thinks about Mexicans. Like I assume <laughs> many are good people. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate, accurate description. And I, I think people that are getting into politics for the first time that, that have not realized kind of what's going on, um, they, they'll never having seen anything before. They'll meet a candidate that's charismatic and, and fall in love, just truly fall in love. And I think that Beto had a lot of that going on as well, where there are a lot of people that have never been politically engaged before. Or maybe they maybe they'd kind of been engaged in like a like a presidential election, but they lived in Texas and they were Democrats and it was a foregone conclusion. And so when Beto approached that threshold that they could actually make a difference, they finally started paying attention and they started seeing new colors and tasting sugar uh, and, and it was sweeter than usual and that kind of thing. So I did meet people like that that were, I mean, just, you know, in, in complete adoration of him. Um, and that's and that's got to also be the thing with like the, the Republicans in Massachusetts, right? That, oh yeah. that at, yeah, a, yeah. at a certain point, you just <laughs> you, you just resign yourself to, to knowing that I will never find love. Right. I will I, I will <laughs> right. I will never truly know these things that are written about in the storybooks that I read as a youth. Uh, I'm always going to have sand kicked in my face by the opposition because they got the numbers. And then for one brilliant, beautiful moment, maybe this is for real. And also in, in, in the Beto case, it's like maybe this is the future. Maybe this is going to be every election now. Yeah, I, I think that there's um, yeah, there, there there was definitely the fact that he might have overtaken him. There, there was a heightened degree of optimism there. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I was um, I'll, I'll go ahead and I, I voted for him. I voted for Beto over Ted Cruz. Uh, I, I am probably the only person in America that's more or less neutral on Ted Cruz. 
Mm-hmm. I don't like. I, I think everybody either hates him or begrudgingly likes him from a distance. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't think anybody that hangs out with Ted Cruz actually likes Ted Cruz. It's why I didn't believe any of the adultery stories the Trump campaign came out with in 2016. <laughs> I was like, no one would hang out with him in a room by himself. Um, but like, you know, I, I've got my own complicated Byzantine org chart of what I want to have happen. And, and I was like, you know what? I don't want as long as Trump's in the White House. I, I want the legislative branches, at least one of them to be Democrat. And I, and, and I so I, I voted for Beto, but I wasn't a part of that whole tidal wave of Beto mania. It was more of like a, ah, all right. Yeah. OK. That was kind of my and I'll, I'll say, too, I also I, I have this um, I, I'm the kiss of death to candidates. Okay. Uh, if, if if I endorse your campaign, you're screwed because I want these like very calm, pragmatic moderates to yeah. be ascendant, and I am the only I'm the last moderate in America, and so it and so I looked at Beto, and I even called uh I called a couple of people that had interviewed him over at Cato, which is my favorite think tank, and was like, what do you guys think about him? And they were like, you know, if there were more Democrats like Beto or work, I'd probably be a Democrat. And I was like, you know, Beto can convince some folks over at Cato. Uh, that's that's pretty good standing to me as a, a guy that likes individual rights and liberty and whatnot. Uh, and so I'd kind of hoped he was going to be that like pragmatic pro-business Democrat type thing. And, um, and maybe he was, but I think the, the longer he kind of fizzled, um, the more it became, well, he's sort of a Texan sub-Kennedy. That seems to be the big appeal. And he's not Ted Cruz, also a big appeal. And, and there's not. And then once you get in the presidential election, he kind of wanted to become all things to all people and then sort of focused on not guns. Which great thing to do in Texas? Well, and, I mean, uh, eventually, eventually. Uh, uh, but uh, r- real quick before we get beyond that cruise election, uh, there seemed to be, at least from my distance, I was not living in Texas, but obviously I talked to a lot of Texans because of my connections through the the Brushwoods and, and right. friends of mine that are there. Money laundering and so forth. Money laundering, of course. Yeah. Uh, that like there was this like. Nobody quite could explain what they liked the most. Everybody mm. had a different thing, uh, but they just knew they liked him. And on some level, I can get why he attracted the kind of support that he did. And he all of a sudden he's the darling of like the Pod Save America crowd and and a lot of the like kind of New York and California writer set because those are Democratic catnip. Right. Like like the, the, the just we don't know why we want to stand next to you, but we all need to stand next to you right now. That's Kennedy, Clinton, Obama. Mm-hmm. Right. Like this is out of that mold and nobody really knows where they come from. They just sort of happen. And so I could get why people just flocked like like he was the 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 Ponch and Llama. Right. Yes. I don't know what a Ponch and Llama is. Oh, that's yes. the that's the, the, the Dalai Lama in waiting. They like, oh, okay. They like yes. identify. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's a great way to describe it. I, I know. I think there, there was there was a certain sense of meteoric ascendancy to him. Um, there, there was definitely like he 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 was kind of getting like he. It felt very Obama esque. Yeah. In terms of the the kind of adulation around him and like I remember when Obama ran successfully, um, like at the beginning of that campaign, a, a lot of uh, I let me think. Um, a lot of my Democrat friends at the time, when Obama was first running, were saying things like, "Oh, I really like that guy. He's not ready. I wish he'd. I wish he'd hold back another four years." Yeah, you know, that kind of thing. And it turns out he he did just fine. Uh, but there was this sense of like, "Yes, this is the the future of it." Um, I, I could be. I mean, they keep telling us that that uh, that Texas is going to go purple. Um, you know, he he now has an infrastructure there. I I, I kind of think. 
if I were gonna if I were gonna bet on this, I would bet heavier on Better or Work becoming a CNN contributor than on becoming a senator. <laughs> Uh, well, but, I mean, you know, yeah, could, uh, could be at some point he comes ready, but by political I, standards, he's still a young dude. So a hundred percent. He's very young. And that's, that's, I guess the last moment. Cause I do want to, I'm, I i do not know. Uh, I, I've been crapping on Beto for a long time. I've been crapping on Beto since the end of that 2018 campaign because I thought he ran an awful last few months. I I was very pessimistic about his presidential run, and then it turned out I was right. And I I was I was unhappy with how happy I got at him flaming out because I was very excited that I was right. And so now I, I do want to go out of my way to point out, like, hey, look, this guy was a little mini revolution in Texas. But now that we've done that, we can close that book. Let's talk about him running for president, because I 100 percent agree. Everything to everyone is a, 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 a positive spin on what to me was just aimless. It started out as. I'm from El Paso, I'll secure the border, or I want comprehensive immigration reform. The first video that he put out before he even ran was all about how we need to fundamentally reshape immigration reform, which nobody is doing right now. Could have totally been his lane. He abandoned it before he even started running, right? Yep. Uh, uh, And then from there, it just keeps wandering. It, it It goes wandering to, we need to stop separating children. Okay, that's a little bit different than comprehensive immigration reform or you should probably put that together in a better message uh i can win texas okay well uh maybe but uh you got to really do texas things to be the guy who could win texas and then the el paso shooting happens and he becomes hell yeah we're gonna take your ar-15s at which point it's like not only is this not gonna play out well for you in a national election but I don't know if you can ever run in Texas again when when every commercial yeah, against you is no, going to be that very, exact ad. Like like if if you're you you can get away with you know like I I don't know Texas politics as well as I know Oklahoma politics right right now Oklahoma is pretty firmly Republican but if you were running in that part of the country and and you've got a drawl and you're like stirring your your bourbon with a tiny handgun yeah going, you know i I'm, I'm an fdr democrat but i sure as hell like shooting turkey like like we'll get behind that that you could you could still you know you're okay he's part of our group yeah yeah i think i i agree with you justin i think we'll, we'll come take your guns is not castro walked that pretty well when you watch the debate um the last one that the beto was in i think um Castro had this uh, uh, I, I was really impressed with the, the kind of mental jujitsu he had of like I'm very progressive, but like, and he, and then he has this whole um, thing about, you know, like, like there's so many minority groups that are shot by cops when they're coming in, when they don't have a warrant. And you're telling me, you now want to empower police to go to all of these poor neighborhoods and seize the guns. And I can't fathom that there's not going to be a lot of innocent blood. And I was like, that is a great way to respond to that because now all of the gun people are like, good, see, exactly. And all of the progressives are like, right, we don't want, yeah, uh, the cops are shooting up minorities. We don't want that. Like uh, Castro handled that very, very well. Uh, yes, I think Beto, not, not a good, not a good place to be. So if we're taking bets, so, I mean, you, you say CNN contributor. Yeah. I think we're both in agreement. It, he's got to at least wait. I mean, he's going to have to, I mean, because if he's not going to run against Cornyn in 2020, then the next time a Texas Senate seat comes up is, uh, uh in when Cruz comes up again. Uh, and I guess at that point, the only other big seat in Texas, if he wanted to stay in Texas, would be the governor's mansion. But that's the same year as when Cruz comes up. Or no, I think it's well, two years before. Uh, so it's like, I, I I, mean, I don't know. I mean, is he does he write well, the he, book? He, does he have a podcast? It's got to be a podcast, right? 
Uh, well, I, I mean, he's welcome. I, I'd love to, I'd love to talk to him. <laughs> uh, or I'll make another prediction here too. So uh, let's let's get into the mind of a politician very quick, particularly a politician that has tasted the the meth of having crowds of people tell you you're the savior of mankind. And, and by that the way, and by the way, he has the heavyweight belt for money raised for a Senate campaign, $78 million, more than anybody else. And as we said at the beginning of the podcast, right now the biggest fundraiser in the 2020 race on the on the Democratic side is Bernie Sanders with 73. So for the Senate, a year ago, in a similar amount of time, he raised more money than Bernie Sanders is, has to run for president. Yes, he did, absolutely. Now, again, I think that that was the defeat Ted Cruz tip jar. But, maybe, maybe. Uh, he- he, he does have that. I, I'm thinking, like, I, I think this is just all politicians. I think it's go incredibly ahead. seductive to have someone come up and shake your hand and go, you know what? Everyone in, in Washington's a crook, but I believe in you and I think you're wonderful. And I, I think you have it in you to save America. And you eventually begin to believe that about yourself, as I think Beto has done, uh, or, or always had. I don't know. I, again, this is a general projection on a we are, we are, we are We are doing big, broad strokes here. Yeah, well, but but, but yeah, but I, I I think that nonetheless he has that though, right? Now let's say you have that and you like going to campaign rallies and you like having thousands of people name their kid Beto after you and on all that kind of stuff. If if you're if if that's what you want to do and you like that and that's what motivates you and 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 you can keep doing that to your eighty, I, if good good chance he just goes to a different state. Uh, I, I think like, and I don't, I don't know the guy he might have, like, I know he's from El Paso and his family's from El Paso. It might be that he is so truly committed to El Paso that he does not want to leave. But I would say the, the average politician, when they, when they quit being a congressman, a lot of the time they stay in DC because they like DC. They like the golf scene. That's where their social life is. So I could also see him a couple of years from now, you'd see a, a song and dance of like, um, well, there's a, there's, there's the, the Democrat drops out for whatever reason, or, or gets hit by a meteor or something, uh, in, in, um, New Hampshire. And, uh, and, and like, and, you know, he gets paradropped in there. I could see something like that happening. I could see him shuffling over. Mm, I like Which that. Scott Brown did, didn't he? I mean, didn't Scott Brown, like he, he ran in Massachusetts and I think he ran again in New Hampshire or something like that because it, you know, it was kind of nearby and it, it seemed like it was that there might be a favorable electorate and it's more important to have office than actually have office where you're from. Um, so I could see that happening. He'd have to go coastal, right? Oh yeah. No, a hundred percent. Yeah. He'd have to, he'd have to do that. Yeah. He, he'd, he'd go to California or to New England or something like that. All right. It wouldn't make sense for him to go to Kansas. He's Put not going to. No, he's, he's no, have no, the same no, problem. no, no. All right. I like this. I like this a lot. Put this put this in a lockbox. The Beto move. We will see whether or not it happens. And Andrew Heaton, uh, uh, the, the political orphanage. Uh, uh, do you have any cool guests coming up or, or guests that just happened that you want people to listen to? Yeah, I've had a bunch of fun guests recently. So this week I had on Mike Larson. Mike Larson is a former comedy writer for uh, the Drew Carey Show and Bill Maher. I knew him when I worked on The Hill because he's also a former press secretary, and he's now running against Jim Jordan out of Ohio. So um, really smart, funny guy who I think is going to run a, an interesting campaign. We also had on um, last week Ben Howe, who uh, had a great conversation with me about like everything from Cyrus the Great to like William Jennings Bryan and all of this, but basically figuring out why the evangelical movement has embraced Trump. And uh, and had on Matt Grossman talking about kind of the main psychological difference between Republicans and Democrats. So I'll throw out if you're interested in how people think in politics, we've had a lot of really good stuff on the political orphanage pertaining to that this month or last month. Awesome. Political orphanage. Andrew Heaton. Thank you so much, sir. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me. Politics.
context. Money. All I really wanna see is the money. I don't really need a deal need the money. All a bad bitch need is the money. I got pants in the coop. So Beto drops out on Friday. Literally as I'm finishing the new Friday edition of our 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 show. And I got a million thoughts in my head, but here's one of them. Is Beto the biggest financial disaster that we've ever seen in politics? How do you prove that? Well, the way I figured it was, you look at how much they raised versus how many days they were in the race. And that will give you some sense of how much money went in for how much result. Now, granted, it's a zero-sum game. Everybody is going to wind up spending a ton of money that isn't going to win. That's part of what politics is. But we can look at these numbers. And so I started. Beto raised $17 million, around $17 million. He was in the race for 201 days. That's 85,000 plus per day. $85,000 plus per day of the Beto 2020 campaign. Now compare that to Bobby Jindal. Bobby Jindal ran in the Republican primary in 2016. He only raised $6 million, was in for 146 days. That's $41,000 per day. So much less than Beto, about half of what Beto spent. How about Lindsey Graham? Lindsey Graham raised $11 million. It's a little closer to Beto. He was in for 203 days, longer than Beto, $54,000 a day. But I got some good news for Beto. Because as it turns out, not only is he not the biggest failure, he's not even the biggest failure from his own state. Oh, everything's bigger in Texas, including these numbers. Rick Perry in 2016 raised $17 million and was in the race for 99 days, making his per day average $171,000 per day. Hachi Machi. I was pointing these numbers out on Twitter when I wound up getting entangled with a man by the name of Tim Miller. Tim Miller run or ran the Jeb campaign. Jeb exclamation point. Oh, yes. That Jeb campaign. He was calling for civility on this, a big moment of reflection and loss for the Beto supporters and campaign. He said it is really classless that people are dancing on the grave of Beto. Everybody on the campaign knows they lost. It just shows bad character. Now, uh, look, I I don't know if I was dancing. I might have been 
two-step it just a little bit. <laughs> I mean, but look, come on. If you're in politics, you're in the emotion manipulation business. You can't be surprised when things boomerang back on you. This is just part of the game. It's part of what you do. It, it, it's, it's, I don't know. I, for him, I'm sure it's a lot more real. But it did make me go and look up Jeb's numbers. <laughs> and so here they are. Jeb raised $155 million. He was in the race for 250 days. That means that for the cause of Jeb running for president in 2020, 500 and $97,000 were spent per day. Now, as I was corrected by Mr. Miller himself, can I call you Tim? Tim, thank you. He said he was not in charge of the super PAC money. And so I do need to point out that both the Perry number and the Jeb number are augmented by gigantic amounts of PAC money. In fact, the Jeb campaign itself only raised $34 million. But I'm lumping them all together here because at some point, organizationally, there had to be a decision by either the candidate or the campaign that they were going to direct donors to fund these PACs. Now, whether or not, obviously, it's illegal for the campaign to interact with the PACs, but at a certain point, if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, how much money would you like? And you're like, well, you've already maxed out donating to the campaign. Go give it to this PAC. Then that's a decision that you're making, right? So I'm including all of it together. You guys want some more rapid-fire numbers? I got some more rapid-fire numbers. How about this one? Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio only. I mean, he, he had a really expensive campaign. $163 million in total funding. 337 days in the race. $483,000 per day. For the record, $130,000 of that came from a political action committee funded by California Vintner John Jordan entitled Baby Got Pack. <laughs> Ted Cruz raised $143 million, 20 less than Marco Rubio, was in for 377 days. He obviously was second only to Trump. That's a pretty lean campaign. Of, of 2016, he ran a very lean campaign, $379,000 per day. But I know you guys want the heavyweights, the ones who went the distance. Hillary Clinton. Raised $770 million, was in the race for 576 days. She spent $1.3 million per day. <laughs> Donald Trump raised $450 million, was in for 511 days. That is $880 thousand per day and i would expect 
that to be, there is a chance Trump might spend $1.5 million a day in 2020. That's a lot of hooch. Politics! And that'll bring us to the end of our show today. I want to thank our Titanic $10 tier, Adam, Jonathan, D-Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, and Brad. Of course, you guys are my super pack at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. It's also there that you can comment gong on this very episode. Get yourself a Beto for America sign. You can email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Music has been provided by Valesco and Trap Killers. And you can follow me at Justin R. Young on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. Get on our Discord, bit.ly slash jury discord. If you want to talk politics 24-7, it's right there for you. That about wraps it up for us today. I would like to remind you, That politics has three names, and there are some shows that talk about politics. Other shows that talk about politics, and there are still more that talk about politics. But this, friends, right here, is the only show that talks about... Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs)